Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. COVID has dominated our thinking for a very long time. And while our attention has been directed towards the implications of a global pandemic, there have been a lot of other things happening underneath, things that are changing on a global scale. Whether it's social and economic justice, or geopolitical change, or sustainability, or global warming and resilience, these are no longer the sole purview of think tanks, community leaders, and scientists. Instead, boards, investors, and customers have put this at the center of leadership's plate. And we're starting to make a few things happen. But we need to do more than that. Or as Elvis Presley once sang, what we really need right now is a little less conversation, a little more action. But right now, I'd like to actually have a little bit more conversation, in great part because I'm so fortunate to have with me here today, Sonny Misser, who is the CEO of Accountability. And they are a consultancy and a standards firm that are focused in on ESG and helping organizations and companies around the world get their hands around this and move from talk to action. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce Sonny Misser from Accountability. Thanks for coming to the A-Fire podcast. First of all, thank you, Gunnar. It is, it is indeed a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm most grateful that you've invited us and thank you for the kind introduction on accountability. We are indeed a global consulting and a standards firm that focuses uh, on issues of sustainability and ESG, and basically how to improve the performance uh, of organizations worldwide. Uh, we have been in business since 1995, so this is our 26th year, uh, and you know our mission and purpose has remained unchanged. So I'm actually delighted to be here. Uh, also, very thankful to you that you, you gave us a little space in your superb magazine, AFIRE produces, um, your journal. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, I, I shouldn't be plugging uh, you so shamelessly, Gunnar, this early in the show, but it is truly what I consider the finest publication of its kind in the industry class. For the conversation today, I thought it might make sense for us to just kind of start with what you think, Sonny, are some of the kind of key changes or developments in ESG that we should be paying attention to uh, in this hopefully post-COVID world? I, I had a feeling that you might ask me that question, Gunnar. Uh, and, and actually, we've been um, doing a lot of thinking around that. We have spent a lot of time with our clients. Uh, we've spent a lot of time with our folks in, in our research area, in our standards area, in our services area. Uh, and, and just based on what we're seeing, what we understand uh, the present and the future to be, uh, I think you can probably encapsulate it into six or seven large trends 
that we see that are likely to impact the marketplace of the near future, if they haven't already. And, and I'll, I'll first try to go through some of these trends, and then perhaps gonna, it might make sense to focus on a few of them, uh, because they have, uh, in my opinion, uh, rather exaggerated effects, uh, both in the world we live in, uh, but, but, but the way we work, the way we respond, uh, and, and what we're likely to face. Um, I think the first thing that is without a doubt, uh, when you look at it at, at an organizational level of CEOs and boards, uh, you are going to see the role and the composition uh, and the purpose and the context of, of a board fundamentally go through change. Another trend that we see that is way uh, ahead in action uh, is the power of institutional investors. Institutional investors are exercising a significant real and escalating pressure on the entire ecosystem, but especially large companies and their boards and CEOs, in terms of incorporating ESG uh, into their considerations and performance. Another trend that I see and we see is, um, it's, it's a delicate one, right? But we are seeing executive compensation at the highest level being linked to a company's ESG performance. It, it, because initially you could do whatever you wanted to and you could say whatever you wanted to, but it didn't matter as long as you got uh, the, the equity returns, but that's not the case anymore, right? So that's another trend we see. We clearly see that there is a huge movement, um, and this will vary by geography, towards diversity, equity, and inclusion the policies, the processes, the thinking, but more with an inclusion lens across, uh, across the board. Uh, trend number six or five or whatever it is would be around resilience in a post-pandemic world and the general state of preparedness that you have to the future and how you, how you, how you anticipate and adapt and perhaps act in a proactive manner towards the future. Uh, and then there's, of course, the issue of cyber risks and cyber security and cyber threats, and a lot can be said about it. And, and last but not least, uh, Gunnar, it is the whole piece about climate. I'd love to break this down just a little bit. So there's the seven things that you mentioned in terms of, of areas where ESG is growing, there's concern, there's issues that people are looking at. But what are those, what's that small number of ones that are being overlooked? those things that we really should be paying attention to now? Uh, I, I think that's a fair question, Gunnar, because fundamentally all of these trends are important and a lot of these issues will matter to different stakeholders based on where they sit, right? Some will be impacting them in a more significant manner, some in a, in a more peripheral manner. But if I were to look back at, through the lens of a CEO and their boards, I think the first fundamental change that we are going to see is the role and the composition of the board. The legal rules as to directors' duties have not changed. What has fundamentally changed are the expectations of the investors 
and the more influential stakeholders as to what they expect from directors. So they expect greater oversight, okay? They expect more meaningful stakeholder engagement. They expect increased transparency. And this in turn creates its own set of internal pressures for board members to comply, to conform, and frankly perform, right? So I, I, we internally amongst us, we have an informal rule calling it the DIRE rule. And I'm not very good at acronyms, but DIRE simply stands for diversity, I for independence, R for refreshment as in turnover of the board, and E for expertise. So the DIRE rule is something that you're going to see exercise more and more and more. Um, an other area around boards, uh, Gunnar, is if you're familiar, and uh, you know, recently in December of 2020, NASDAQ filed a proposal with the U U.S. Securities Exchange Commission, and it was a proposal around diversity and disclosure. And I'll simplify the proposal. Broadly speaking, it says that every company that was listed with NASDAQ in the future should have at least two independent directors who conform to the diversity and inclusion guidelines. And if they don't, then there has to be a written endorsed statement by the CEO and the board as to why not. Right Now, this is something that could fundamentally change the tone of the top, but also the resulting or the cascading impact that would happen as a result of this. So I think the composition of the role of the board is, is critical. The other big trend that I see and we see that would likely have the most significant impact on it is, is the whole area of institutional investors. Institutional investors are exercising a significant, a real, but more importantly, escalating, escalating pressure on the ecosystem, which in their case is the financial services world, right? I think it was early last week that a group of 35 investors got together, and they're big ones, and I don't want to name them. They got together and they approached 24 of the largest banks in the world, including Goldman Sachs, you know, BNP Paribas, uh, HSBC. And, and the thinking there was they were pressuring these banks to move the investment portfolios that they had away from fossil fuels and carbon intensive projects and escalating their green spending. Right now, how the transition occurs, mm -hmm. when it occurs, the velocity at which it happens is secondary. But the fact that there is this pressure, and you, you've seen Mr. Fink's letter at the beginning of the year, he just came up with something a few days ago. Um, you know, all of these factors will have a very meaningful effect. And the third point that I'd like to stress is the issue of climate. Everyone loves to talk about climate, and I think it's a fair point. Um, However, understanding, a, a fundamental understanding of the climate issue uh, is, is, is very much required in this case. You know, I am a firm believer that the issue of climate and its change and its risks is a global issue. However, climate risks are very local. 
and climate risks need to be understood and addressed in a, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of encapsulated context. The issues facing, I'll give you an example, the issues facing, let's say, northwest, uh, the coastline of the northwest United States uh, with the Pacific Ocean, they are going to be fundamentally different than all these lawmakers who've gathered in Paris to determine what the policies on climate change need to be. Right, so one shoe size is not going to fit all. Mm -hmm. and, and if you look at a climate issue, you have to not just understand it in a local context; you also have to disaggregate it for a local response. We feel that there are four fundamental areas mm -hmm. of climate uh, that can have the maximum impact. Number one, food supply chains. Right, from the time you grow and from the farm to the table. Yeah. The second area, uh, which is going to go through a huge amount of uh, stress, is the whole area of energy, utilities, infrastructure. And I think in an earlier discussion a while ago, you and I had touched about this, the concept of water, uh, getting electric supply. And if, if people don't believe us, just see what happened in Texas a few months ago, right? Uh, the third right. area of fundamental mm -hmm. change is going to be physical assets. And everyone talks about it, right? The damage to physical assets is the same. But what they don't discuss is who's going to pay for that. So you have an entire industry within the subsect of, uh, of financial services, the mortgage industry or the insurance industry. And that is going to go through a fundamental change and overhaul. So what this does is it shows that how climate can truly impact in a very local level and almost have colloquial effects. So the bottom line for me, the climate issue is global, but climate risks are local. And well, uh, it's almost as if we have to, as a, as a world community, certainly we have to understand that this is, these are all interlocking chains. These are, you know, one thing happens and it's dominoes, I guess would be the other metaphor that it all affects all the others. I mean, I'd love for you to go into more detail about what you think the potential impact, certainly the mortgage industry is very important to the commercial real estate industry, um, what the impact of insurance and insurance availability, especially in these coastal regions might be. Yeah. You know, even before I go into insurance, let me take a step back because the step and that would answer not just the insurance question, but the underlying issues of credit risk, mortgages, uh, free flow of cash, etc. We are currently facing gonna, unprecedented times of change, to some degree transition, uh, but fundamentally uh, newer ways and means of working. Uh, whether they last, whether they become a hybrid, whether they evolve, I I'm not sure. But there's going to be a change, right? So when you look at what we have faced, the way employees work, the way our clients behave or respond, the way our supply chains function, all of that will go through a fundamental change. And what will evolve will be a new set of metrics for performance. And, and, and let me explain what I mean by new metrics of performance. Uh, without going into great detail is what is the metric, what is the measure, what is the uh, frequency and application. L let me try to explain this in terms of principles of metrics. The one fundamental principle of change that is going to accompany us in a post-COVID world is the principle of inclusivity. Inclusivity as to how we view problems and their solutions 
in a more holistic and an inclusive manner. The second one is going to be responsiveness. Okay, responsiveness after the fact, much after the fact, proactively planning for it, preparedness, resilience, responsiveness. The third area is that of impact. Okay, uh, and impact both in material as well as in non-material terms. Okay, now I, I, I hate to say this, but this may seem like a shameless plug of accountability's principles, uh, and we have four of those for the last 26 years. Uh, materiality, inclusivity, responsiveness, and impact. But these are more principles of good behavior, good management, good oversight, good governance, good ways of working. But they can just as easily be applied to a post-crisis world. And the second point I'd like to stress in terms of, besides these principles and metrics of performance, is the interconnectedness of things, Gunnar, right? The interconnectedness of things is huge. So, you know, it is, it, is, it is funny because a lot of people, for example, when we faced this crisis, they came in and they're right. Oh my God, the airline industry is dead. It's over, it's finished. And, and you and I spend more times uh, of our, more time in our lives on airplanes than probably we do on the ground. Okay? And it's certainly something I'm painfully aware of. Or the area of hospitality and hotels. But, but one has to look at this issue as it connects to its broader business ecosystem. When you look at airlines, yes, you look at the jobs that are lost, or the staff that serve you on the airplane, the staff that service your airplane, the staff that welcome you at the airport, the staff that keep the lounges going, etc., etc. But then there's a next level. There is the whole catering industry that is built around airlines. They're damaged, seriously so. There is the whole field of leasing and renting aircraft. Yeah, it's most airlines lease their aircraft for a certain period of time. And it is for huge, huge sums of money. That's severely impacted as a result of that. And finally, um, you know, as we talk about interconnected, you know, how the orbit keeps increasing, uh, is, is, is the final one, is every minute that an airplane of a significant size is in the air, it consumes enormous amounts of jet fuel. So has anyone thought of the oil and gas guys? They're not selling fuel to keep airplanes up in the air. Right. So, so, and and if you do a similar analysis for hotels and hospitality, you start with jobs, you start with catering, and then you start with leasing. Right. Or the rental market, because most hotels and spaces are leased. And finally, you come into the financial services industry and say, well, how am I going to deal with the whole area of insurance, mortgage, debt, repayment, uh, and interest? So. So the, the interconnectedness of things and the ripple effect of an increasing orbit uh, should probably not be underestimated. Uh, and it will have drastic consequences on many people besides the ones who fly an airplane or work in a hotel. And there is a tendency for us to go shallow, to, to look at the, the first step, the second step, and not keep seeing all those implications and where they go. I mean, in real estate, we've often had you know, over the last year, all these conversations about how many people are going to work from home, 
permanently right. how many people it's, it's a constant debate and no one knows right. um but there's certainly a clear indication that it's going to be less people in the office than there were before True. as soon as you do that however there's an entire ecosystem around the office and around that part of town and how that changes yes. uh, whether it's the restaurants or the, the service providers that that make working downtown in an office a pleasant Right. activity, uh, something that people want to do. All those people aren't there anymore because those businesses had to go away. And they may not come back if the density is not there, because right. the density is what supports those things uh, for happening. So a lot of times when we talk about this, we talk about just the immediate, which is we've right. got to we've got to refill our office buildings. We've got to figure out what happens there. We've got to figure out how we space out the office buildings so that people feel safe in a post-pandemic world, et cetera, et cetera. All important things that people are worrying about. But what they're not worrying about is all the stuff underneath uh, and all the kind of small things and how they kind of Im impact in a chain. I love the way you talk about interconnectedness of things. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, I'd love your thoughts on this. So everything is interconnected. And, you know, a lot of times we've been talking in, in the past 20 years about the network effect. And we talk about the power of the Internet and all the things right. that are happening there. But we've also got uh, a problem in that when parts of the network are hurt in some way, if an individual, yeah. a company is hurt, then a lot of people hurt instead of just being localized. Um, do you see people pushing for more network or less network um, as they think about resiliency? Now, this, this is a you know, fundamental question, and if I recall, on one of our earlier conversations, you had summarized it far better than me. So I'm gonna to try to be Gunner for a moment, but I can't be that cool, but then I'll have to defer to this question. Uh, firstly, the power of networks can never be underestimated, right? Uh, networks, but I, I, what I mean by networks are true networks, genuine networks, real networks that function as networks. Uh, when you look at networks, a network does not necessarily have to be overly structured or formalized or in some ways rigid. In fact, it is often its flexibility that can be a strength as opposed to the opposite. Uh, you know, when you look at networks, I think they have to be viewed in the context of the governance of a network and the system that they operate in. You know, Clearly, if you look at two extreme ends of the governance spectrum, you have a more autocratic model, and then you have a model which is perhaps slightly utopian, at least to our times, a, a model of collaborative governance. And then there is every variant in between, right? And the networks sort of operate within those general environments. Uh, and I was fascinated, Gunnar, uh, with your analogy, and I won't do it justice, I, I would you know, humbly request if you could, because you said there are empires and there are networks, there are kings, uh, and, and, and there are common people in networks. And kings will come and go, empires will come and go, but true networks will always survive. Would you care to explain that point? Because I think, I think that's a very material and a relevant point. I was always struck by the fact that um, uh, that in in many stories of power and people that are that are followed thousands of years after they go away, 
um, were not king. So there were kings during their time, but people don't necessarily know who those kings are unless they studied. Mm. So you have, certainly you have, you have Christ, you have Buddha, you have a lot of other characters throughout human history that their power has gone beyond. Now, a lot of people describe their power as inspiration and charisma. Um, you know, have, following someone who's just so amazing, a prophet, etc. And And there's aspects of that, certainly. But I wonder when I think about the disciples of these people and how they create a network that is almost anonymous. You know, maybe we, we know their names if they wrote a book in a Bible or something like that. But at the mm -hmm. end of the day, most of them are anonymous throughout history. And you have networks such as the Jesuits. Uh, that for hundreds of years, if not thousands, have had an incredible impact, hundreds, I guess, incredible impact on governance of countries, on economics, on, on spirituality across the world. You have the same thing happening with uh, the Freemasons um, and what they did in Europe and then the United States and how it influenced and impacted what we are today. They're networks. You could get rid of one node, the network would continue. Mm -hmm. You, you, you had the network of financial uh, banking in medieval Europe that went across country and could not be cr country borders and could not be destroyed because of the network of relationships. The same way that today you have associations like AFIRE that, as that aspires to be a network where right. everyone is made more, uh, is optimized by the network itself. I would also argue that networks don't aren't always called networks and things that are called networks are not always networks. So an example would be Facebook where the people that are in that network and social media are not independent. They are not working as part of a network. They are receiving messages and acting according to those messages, which sounds wow. to me like an empire fascinating uh, fascinating example gunner because normally the tendency would be just to reverse say, well facebook that's a great network isn't it but when you put it the way you just did uh it, it sheds light on a, on, a, on a very real issue but an issue that most people overlook by the way i would in in, in, in if you were looking at history i think the vatican itself at least at one point in time was a very powerful network a network into, unto itself uh, but they certainly were, were were able to to sort of you know wield a lot of influence disproportionate to their size. Um, I'm just curious, Gunnar, why is it that some networks survive and thrive uh, while others, seemingly much more powerful, wealthier, influential, and networked, pardon the pun, network networks, don't? I mean, is there is there some hallmark of resiliency? Uh, that's a great question, and one that that I'd love to keep asking. I have a suspicion where we might find it, where we might find an answer to that. Uh, there are networks where, it, when the members of the network identify themselves as part of the network, that that is who they are. I am a Freemason, I am a Jesuit, I am, you know, what, whatever the, 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 the identity might be. That's, I think, one element. I don't think it's the only element. 
Another element that I think is powerful, when you think about some of these that have lasted for centuries, there was what can the, what can the network do for me, but overwhelmingly, what can I do for the network? For the network. How do I live up to the standards? And, and I think it's interesting. So, you know, you're a standards firm, uh, you know, that, that you work with. Um, there is a standards. And think about the standards that, that everyone has to live up to in any of these kinds of groups uh, that are out there. And, and they're held accountable by other members of the network. So the, the, the network isn't just trying to make the network successful, it's trying to make all the nodes successful and trying to make them better versions of themselves. And the only way you can do that is through a network. Um, now, that's also what makes it resilient. So it can move a lot more, it can learn, it can change. Uh, something that's solidified, that's hardened, like an empire, there are advantages to empire. It can move very, very quickly. It, 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 it accretes power to the center. It's, a lot of things are really attractive about an empire. However, it's also brittle. We have run out of time for this episode of the AFIRE podcast, but the conversation with Sonny Misser of accountability keeps going on. And that's why we're going to offer a second part to this discussion where we will discuss the power of networks, how companies fail, and of course, ESG. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice to this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast. Thank you.